What was helpful for me in learning about this model too is you start to realize that people are where they are and that there's no right or wrong and you really can't change them. And so it shifted my perspective and I talk a little bit about this in the book to the point where you start to realize that the people aren't wicked. We're just facing some really wicked problems and we have different views on the best approach to try to solve those problems. And so I think starting to realize that, uh, you know, we're always going to have people in every layer. Uh, so we're never going to have consensus in our society. And so starting from that point in creating solutions is going to go a long way. And so what that means is that we need to design systems that are going to work for people regardless of where they are in, in their development. If you want to help support Awake Aware Alive uh, to keep this thing going, head over to jacobgossel.com. That's J-A-C-O-B-G-O-S-S-E-L.com. That's me, host of this program. And scroll down to the bottom of the page and you'll see a few buttons. You can click any of those buttons and it will help support the podcast in ways that I can't thank you enough for. One is become a patron on Patreon. Uh, for as little as one buck a month, you'll get early access to episodes and various different goodies that are in the works that I will be talking about soon. Another is uh, PayPal or Venmo. You can leave a one-time donation, which greatly helps the show. Uh, the last button here is an Amazon button that'll take you to what looks like an Amazon homepage. You can bookmark it. You can buy anything you would normally buy on Amazon for um, no extra charge. And I will get a very small percentage of your purchase. It's really small, but it does help. Because um, any, any any little thing helps when you're a independent creator of a relatively unknown podcast such as this. Uh... Another way you can help support the show is whatever app you use to listen or however you listen, if there's a, a possibility to review and rate it. I know Apple Podcasts has that. I don't know if Google Podcasts has it. I'm sure there's some type of review system. I don't know. But leave a rating and review. This is super easy to do and it's very helpful. Helps the podcast show up for other people who might enjoy it and stuff like that i don't know exactly what it does but i know it helps and it's real easy so if you want to do that that would be awesome but if you're still listening to this then you're already doing me a huge favor by just listening and not only me but yourself and the world i think because it means you're seeking out information that could help to change your perspective shift your values uh, create more harmony and peace in your life, assist you in understanding the world around you and yourself more, and um, that's kind of what we're going for here. So if you're listening, great, thank you, and that's all um, I really care about, but there are easy ways to support the show, and if you want to do it, I greatly appreciate it. 
Another easy way to support is if you are listening and you enjoy it, send it to a friend, share it on social media, uh, go follow Jacob Gossel on Instagram. That's the kind of the landing page for this show on Instagram. Uh, we just started a group on Facebook. So there's the Awake Aware Alive page, which you can go and like if you like the show. But there's also a group. You can join the group and um, start a discussion. You know, post uh, articles you find interesting, memes you find funny, whatever it is. The group is just about connecting around cool ideas and um, starting a little online community. So that is that. And without uh, any more of this sort of mm, advertisement type self-promotion jazz, uh, we'll get into the episode here. Today's guest is Monica Borgio. Uh, Monica just came out with a new book called The Change Code, um, which utilizes the work of Claire W. Graves, um, most commonly known now under the name Spiral Dynamics. It's a model of human development. Um, And if you don't know anything about Spiral Dynamics, look it up. It's really interesting. And you can check out um, both of my episodes with Steve McDonald, who does a lot of work around Spiral Dynamics. It's something that I will probably be talking a lot about on this show, not just this episode, but the show in general. So um, get familiar with it because it's going to come up a lot and... I find it very interesting, and you might too. So Monica's book revolves around this uh, type of stuff and how it can be useful for people who want to make changes in their companies, in their environment, in the political system, any types of changes. Um, So it's kind of geared towards helping change makers navigate um, this ever-changing, complex world that we live in. Um, I heard of Monica through Steve McDonald, um, and then funny enough, through talking to Monica, I actually found out that Monica uh, learned about Steve McDonald through this podcast. So that's pretty interesting. There's some synergy going on there. Monica was writing a book revolving around the spiral dynamics stuff and so she was following a spiral dynamics hashtag and i posted an episode with steve and i must have hashtagged it spiral dynamics so then she found steve steve wrote the forward to her book steve had her on their podcast future sense and i heard of monica through there and then i decided to interview monica because i enjoy what she's talking about and then find out that she met Steve through this podcast. So very cool. Um, those are the little things that kind of help you feel like you're headed in the right direction. The little breadcrumbs that keep you uh, keep you on the trail. So I'm not going to talk anymore about Monica. She's got a cool book, The Change Code. So check out her website, monicaborgeau.com or thechangecode.net. You can also find it on Amazon. Pick up the book to support Monica's work, and um, she's got a cool Facebook group 
um, revolving around the book and this work um, that she's doing to help change, change agents. So it's a cool place to connect with other people who are interested in this sort of thing. So check that out. Um, I will link to that in the show notes. And the book and her website, of course, will be linked in the show notes. Um, so check those out if you're interested. Um, and I hope you enjoy this interview with Monica Bourgeois. The first thing I'm kind of curious about, I heard a little bit of your, well, I heard the whole interview of yours with, uh, on Future Sense. So that was good. So I got a little bit of insight into your background, but, um, for those of people who don't know anything about you, uh, I'd love to know some of your background and how you, what brought you to write a book about, uh, something like Spiral Dynamics or what you call the change code, which will get into yeah awesome great question well uh you know i've always been a pretty optimistic person and i've felt the need to try to create positive change in the world you know pretty much my whole life i've kind of had that underlying drive to do that and back in 2014 i wrote an article called seven ways to change the world that got uh published on huffington post and i ended up getting emails from people from around the world that said it inspired them to start taking action. And then it, it got featured in a textbook and some other things. And so that created an interest in wanting to try to write a book on that topic. Uh, Career-wise, I've been in healthcare transformation for more than two decades. And you know, I have degrees in psychology and a master's in organizational leadership and development. And what was interesting is I never came across the theory of spiral dynamics or Claire W. Graves's work in all of that study. Uh, you know, plus I've studied a lot of spirituality and personal development, those types of things. And so uh, I was proceeding down the path of writing this book on, you know, practical things that we could do to make the world a better place. And it just so happens right after I made that decision that I was at uh, – <clears throat> a church actually that I used to go to kind of randomly and they announced this class on spiral dynamics which I thought oh that sounds interesting and uh, not realizing that it was going to completely change my life so I attended this six-week class and after the first uh, episode I knew that you know I was really meant to use this theory and that it would be the underlying framework for my book. That's very cool so it was an immediate excitement about it it seems like that's a common theme among people who who get into this work it's like right when they hear it they immediately get really excited about it yeah i've heard that from some other people too i think if it resonates with you it really resonates with you and it was one of those things like it just turned the light on for me and uh, for a couple of reasons you know one i felt like it really helped create some context around all of the things that are happening right now 
And even though I'm pretty optimistic in general, honestly, I had gotten pretty frustrated and actually a little bit depressed about kind of the state of the world. Mm -hmm. And so this really came into my life at the perfect time. And so it helped me understand that a lot of the polarization we're seeing in society and this tension and friction is actually a normal part of our developmental process as humans. Uh, but it also helped tell me that there's uh, another layer. There's an opportunity for us to move beyond this and cre really create some amazing things. So that was super exciting for me. So for, you know, I think if if there are people out there that listen to my podcast regularly, um, they probably know a bit about this through Steve, my interviews with Steve, but it would probably be helpful in case somebody just listens to this as a one-off uh, if you could give a little overview on what Claire W. Graves' work is, you know, uh, who who he is and maybe why it's uh, people haven't heard of it and those types of things. Yeah, absolutely. So Claire W. Graves was a developmental psychologist who was also a professor at Union College in Schenectady, New York. And so he used to teach this wide range of psychology classes, and he used to have students that would come to him and say, hey, Dr. Graves, you know, you've taught us all of these different theories about psychology. Which one is the right one? And it would frustrate him because he could see the limitations in some of these other theories, and he felt like he didn't know the right answer because there was, uh, you know, value but also issues with all of the theories that he was presenting. And so he really sought to uh, uncover what makes up a healthy human being. And he decided to really let the research guide him rather than creating this hypothesis ahead of time and then trying to back it up with his data. So he set out on this mission to collect all of this data about humans and he ended up collecting data for I think nearly 10 years. and did a lot of um, validation of the data through this process. And he actually ended up collecting data on more than a thousand individuals over the course of this period of time. And really what he uncovered is the underlying pattern for human and societal change, which is just mind blowing to me because once you understand that, you can understand kind of where we've come from both as individuals and as societies but it also helps you to start to predict what's coming next because he identified eight specific stages that we all go through in the exact same order and you can't skip stages. So once you understand where an individual or a society is at, you know what the next stage is going to be. And so it can really help when you're trying to lead change initiatives or, uh, you know, just understand what's happening you know, around you and within you too, because there's systems within us. Mm -hmm. So, um, so there's eight primary layers. I don't know if you want me to, to yeah. kind of give a quick overview of those. Yeah, I think that would be good. <clears throat> so when Graves did the research, he referred to these different layers or stages by numbers. But when uh, Dr. Beck and Chris Cowan, who wrote a book on spiral dynamics and the work of Claire W. Graves, put that book together, they named the layers uh, by colors. And so I tend to refer to them by the color 
when you hear Steve McDonald, he tends to refer to them by the number, which is really helpful. So, so the first layer is really beige. And the focus on beige is just about uh, meeting basic human needs. And so food, comfort, sleep, reproduction, uh, there's a limited concept about time and distance and connection. And there's very little self-awareness. And so that's the first layer that we all go through. And so, you know, that would be like at, when you're a baby, you're in the beige layer. We do also still see it in our society, especially, you know, among maybe the homeless might be in that stage, potentially. Uh, it's very much hunting, gathering, that type of thing. So once you move through beige, the next layer, the second layer, or purple, uh, you begin to move uh, into a focus on the family. And one thing I should mention, too, is it there's a movement between very individual-focused and communal-focused. So the first one, beige, is very individually focused. And uh, you start to realize that you need the help of others to really create safety. And so that is what prompts you to move into this next layer, which is purple or the second layer. And so in purple, there's a shift to really focusing on the family, keeping um, the good spirits happy. There's a lot of mysticism and magic and that sort of uh, belief system in the purple layer. Uh, it's really driven by family loyalty and a sense of belonging, connection, uh, that sort of thing. <clears throat> and so we definitely still see some purple elements in our society. You know, if you've ever gone to a football game, there's a lot of this kind of tribalistic uh, family energy that you see exhibited by people who are attending a football game. You know, they might not be in that layer per se, but they are exhibiting traits of their, their purple layer. So then from purple, the third layer is red, and it again goes back to being very individualistic. And red is very focused on action and assertiveness. Uh, individuals in red see the world as a dangerous jungle that's full of threats that they need to survive. And so it's very much about dominating people or situations that are weaker, uh, taking power, dominance. It's very self-centered, very egocentric. And so the red layer can be really challenging. There are still some uh, parts of the world where there might be societies still in the red layer. Uh, but eventually, people kind of get fed up with with being controlled like that. And so then there's a movement to the next layer, which is blue. And that's the fourth layer. Blue is very focused on righteous order and includes things like religion and churches and hierarchy. But it can also be a, a type of government. So it doesn't necessarily have to be church-based. But there's a very black and white code of conduct. So there's really only one right way to do things and one path to follow. So if you're outside of that right path, then you're wrong. And there's also uh, a belief that you need to sacrifice now in order to receive benefits later. So it's very sacrificial uh, for the self. Um, it is a community value system. And so uh, it does have some value as far as that goes in, you know, supporting members who are part of that layer, there's a lot of community support, uh, that sort of thing. <clears throat> and then from blue, 
there starts to be a backlash between all of that rigid order. And so we start to see a shift from blue to orange, which is the fifth layer. And orange is very focused on materialism. It's very driven by technology, uh, scientific advances, and it's very competitive. So there's a lot of emphasis on competing to win and succeeding. Um, again, it moves back to the very individually focused. Uh, they also see many right paths. And so there's lots of ways of doing things. So there's kind of a little bit of a backlash to that blue layer of just having one right way to do it. Because uh, when uh, individual or society is in orange, they see lots of opportunity. Uh, it also is big on leveraging influence, uh, consulting experts, uh, technology, very image conscious. And our society as a whole, in general, is still in this orange layer. So we see a lot of wonderful things because of this orange layer. You know, we've seen the development of technology and computers. We've seen a great extension of our lifespan because of all the medical advances that we've seen under the orange layer. A lot of developments. But we're also starting to see some of the downsides uh, because orange has gone a little bit too far and we're starting to see things deconstruct. So things like plastics in the ocean and this um, overemphasis on consumerism and materialism, it's really started to result in feelings of isolation and loneliness in people and a disconnection from community. And so again, you know, just like the previous layers, we're starting to see a shift into a more communal model, which is this next layer of green, which is uh, layer six. And it's very focused on healing the self, healing the planet, equality. So they don't like hierarchy at all. So it's dismantling a lot of the hierarchy, inclusiveness, very values driven and consensus driven. Uh, instead of authority, they really seek harmony. And it's very people driven. Uh, there's a a look inward to try to find inner peace, uh, consensus, harmony, all of those sorts of things. And so it's interesting because you can start to see the signs of this shift kind of everywhere. I, I do a lot of traveling and used to be when you were in an airport, you would see Cinnabon on every corner. Mm -hmm. And now, fortunately, there's also green juice bars and those sorts of things. And so you can start to see that shift in our culture and signs in the airports that, you know, they're starting to be carbon offsets and all of those sorts of things. So people are starting to think about our relationship with the planet and other humans differently. So, mm -hmm. so we're right in that transition. Yeah. And then the, the really exciting thing are the next two layers. And so uh, the next two layers, graves refer to as second tier and so once we create this framework in the green layer, we're really poised to move to the second tier, which Graves referred to as um, a momentous leap for mankind. Because once we move into the second tier, the next two layers are seven and eight, yellow and turquoise. Um, in yellow, humans are able to handle more complexity than they could in all of the previous layers combined. And so it really gives us a, an ability to solve complex problems and interact with the world on a really different level. The exciting thing about the yellow layer is that we no longer see things as black and white. 
we're able to start seeing uh, a paradox. So two things that are seemingly opposite um, can also be right at the same time. And so that provides a lot of opportunities for creative solutions. We're no longer stuck in just looking at one single belief system or dogma. We're able to take the best aspects of multiple systems and apply them in an effective way to create new solutions. Um, it's still, it's an individual layer, but uh, there is an understanding that there's individualism, but it's without the harm to others, which is a pretty big deal. Uh, it also demands open systems. There's a big emphasis on functionality and finding what works the best, competence, and living in a state of flow. So one of the most exciting aspects of yellow to me is that ability to live in flow. So we're no longer living from a state of fear, but we're able to make more uh, rational and actually intuitive types of decisions and be able to combine those elements of rational and intuitive to really create the best decisions. Uh, there's also a lot of spontaneity, it's very process driven. Um, and we're able to effectively really use both sides of our brain. So when you look at the previous layers, they might be more focused on the right brain or the left brain. And the yellow layer is really where it starts to merge. And so we're able to have a lot more capacity. And then the final layer is turquoise. And turquoise is really focused on the power of the universe and the good of all living things. So it understands the value of animals and plants and the planet really as a living entity. Uh, we start to look at integrated systems. Uh, it's very capable and spiritually oriented. So there's an appreciation of awe, reverence, grat gratitude, unity, and simplicity. So uh, what Graves also started to see is that in these higher layers, the um, earlier layers start to repeat themselves, but this time at a much higher octave. Mm -hmm. And so with turquoise, you see some elements of purple. So some of the beliefs in um, mysticism and magic and that sort of thing, you start to see in turquoise, but at a higher octave. And so there is that uh, belief in spirituality and awe and magnificence, uh, which all sounds really amazing to me. So, <laughs> yeah. so that's the theory in a nutshell. There's kind of a lot to unwrap there, but... That'll give the listeners a quick overview. Yeah, no, that was great. Thank you. Um, and something it kind of uh, brought up for me, which is a big theme in your book, is you kind of read, I mean, it's right in the sort of subtitle about a polarized world. Um, I'm wondering if you could break down sort of your understanding of how this model can explain why things are so polarized right now um and sort of how that's manifesting in the world yeah great question this was uh, a pretty eye-opening moment for me as well when i was learning about the theory because uh we have all of these active value systems in our society right now in fact uh, we have the most active value systems in society than at any other time in human history and so uh what we have are individuals in these different layers that are essentially they have different 
belief systems. They believe that there is a different operating manual for how society should work. And so their perception of the world is totally different. And the way they look at solutions is also totally different. And so that explains a lot of the friction and tension that we see between groups in our society. We also uh, have a lot of the blue layer, uh, the orange layer, the green layer in our society right now. And those groups really view the world very differently. And so uh, it's hard to come to a consensus about even, you know, what is factual and what is not. And then when you add to that, the changes that we've seen in our society. So now we have, you know, we have the internet, we have hundreds of cable television channels, we have YouTube, anybody with a cell phone can, you know, pick up their phone and create a video. And so we have all of these different options for news sources and sources of facts. And so one of the things we've lost in our society is that common understanding of facts. So it used to be that there were, you know, a couple of news stations and everybody watched the same news, you know, after dinner time. And there was a shared understanding of what was true and what is not true. Mm -hmm. And we've lost that. And there's become a real emphasis on these different groups. So other, each group is developing their own, uh, you know, sense of what is true and what's not true, mm -hmm. which, which makes it challenging to come together as well. Yeah, and the, the social media sort of amplifies that by predictive or algorithms you know, that predict what people want to see and want to hear and sort of creates these echo chambers and further separates these different truths or whatever. Um, and I notice even in my own life, like I'm really into health and diet and stuff like that. And the further I've gone into researching it, I feel like the less I know because the more confusing it gets and there's all sorts of studies that contradict other studies and there's secret corporate funding of studies and there's all these different things where it just gets to the point where you're just like, okay, my old way of understanding what's right for me just doesn't work anymore. Like I'm going to have to find a new way to, f you know, to know what's, what what feels good and what's right for for me as an individual not just okay now paleo is the right diet so i better go with that you know what i mean um but so that that whole thing is really interesting to me and what i kind of you know felt a little bit and i imagine that a lot of people feel and i still feel this way like i'm very uh, like this model resonates with me to uh, very large extent and I, it helps me see all these things in the world like you're talking about uh, but there's also a part of me that I still like it feels a little overwhelming to me still at times you know like it's just so much and to see it all playing out and to feel like it's so accurate it almost feels dreamlike or something it's hard to explain but um but I also get the feeling of you know as you're talking through the layers um, I can see how people that maybe are at a certain, you know, they have a dominance in a certain layer or a certain layer is dominant in them rather. Um, they might feel like, get the sense that there's like, oh, well this next layer is better than my layer and feel 
you know, like this feeling of fearing the the future layer and sort of resenting the previous layer. Could you speak a little bit to that whole thing? Yeah. Well, I think it's important to realize that the layers build upon each other. And so we all have our previous layers within us. And so when we start to feel judgmental, I think it's important to realize that we have that aspect within us and that no one layer is better than another. And what was helpful for me in learning about this model too is you start to realize that people are where they are and that there's no right or wrong and you really can't change them. And so it shifted my perspective and I talk a little bit about this in the book to the point where you start to realize that the people aren't wicked we're just facing some really wicked problems and we have different views on the best approach to try to solve those problems. And so I think starting to realize that, uh, you know, we're always going to have people in every layer. Uh, so we're never going to have consensus in our society. And so starting from that point in creating solutions is going to go a long way. And so what that means is that we need to design systems that are going to work for people regardless of where they are in, in their development. And that we need to work together to understand these different perspectives so that we can move everyone along. Uh, I talk about a quote in, in the book that you can't move forward when half the country is deplorable. So mm. like when you go in with that assumption you're you're leaving half the country behind. Uh, you you just you can't make any progress that way. And so we have to start thinking about individuals differently, and using this model as a way of understanding people and where they are, so that we can meet them where they are, rather than trying to make them trying to see the world from our perspective, which I think is our natural tendency. Like if I just show them enough facts then they're going to understand what I'm saying. And then we wonder why that doesn't work. And it's because their view of the world is so completely different that those facts don't align with that view. And so, you know, if we're wanting to make progress, we really have to take the time and understand where people are coming from and meet them there. And actually, when we start having those conversations, it's really interesting because you may not agree with another person, but when you start to have discussions about their life conditions and why they believe what they believe, you start to see, well, there's a little bit of merit to that. I could see where if I was in that situation, I would probably think differently. And I, I've had this experience myself in writing the book and putting it out there. Um, I have a dear friend who uh, has been so supportive on this book, but she was really offended when I posted that I am going meatless. and. Mm. So we had a, a discussion about that and climate change and have very different perspectives on what's happening in the world. Well, when I sat down and thought about it and had this conversation with her, her family are cattle ranchers and they've been cattle ranchers for you know many years. That's part of their identity. That's part of their way of life. And so, you know, just understanding that perspective was really helpful for me in realizing that okay, I believe this, but I see how someone else could have very different beliefs. But I think there's a way for us to work together because there were definitely areas of agreement too. So Yeah. Yeah. And that's 
such interesting territory because I, before you gave that example, I was going to say like sometimes I think you find when you do talk to people who you might think, or you don't even necessarily need to talk to them. Sometimes it's just really, really trying to think about the situation and imagine their perspective. It's like sometimes there is valid things there that need to be looked at and felt and addressed to move forward and that's part of the reason why they're resisting so much is because they're not being listened to and you know because I feel those parts of myself where there's parts of me that really want to move forward and evolve and do some new courageous thing and there's other parts of me that are still scared for good reason because of childhood programming or whatever that are kind of like trying to hold me back and the instinct I think at times is to want to just push past the the limitations you know you're just holding it back like we gotta just forget about the deplorables or whatever you know whatever the example might be but i think it's like within those limitations that's where there's some sort of knowledge and healing that needs to take place you know to move forward in a way that's actually whole and and uh in flow maybe yeah, exactly. And what's fun is when you start to look at things from different perspectives, especially if you're leading change or just an organization, it is so helpful to look at these different perspectives. So one of the tools that I share in the book is uh, called Polarity Mapping. And this was a tool that was developed by Barry Johnson, but is it's a super simple tool and is so easy to use. So it essentially breaks any problem down into four quadrants. So anything that's a polarity from just as simple as do we change or do we not change, right? That's mm -hmm. a polarity. And anytime you're trying to lead change, you're going to have people that are on, yes, let's change. And people that are saying, no, let's change. We've got a great tradition and uh, experience here, you know, whatever it may be. But when you map that out and look at the strengths of changing, the strengths of not changing, what are the what are the downsides of changing? What are the downsides of staying the same? And you create a collaborative process with individuals in a situation, you start to shift perspectives and everyone starts to see the value of the other side. And then what you find is that the solution truly is somewhere in between. Yes, maybe we're going to change, but we're also going to preserve some of our tradition and the value there. Mm. And good leaders in the future, this is going to be a critical skill for them. They're going to be able to manage these polarities um, in order to stay in that upper quadrant. So the strengths of changing, the strengths of not changing, and how to merge those together to move forward together. And so, um, so I'm really excited about that as a tool. And you know getting more leaders to start to use it and start to really think that way yeah i think that's great um something that makes me think of too is i think you know i I went through a period of time of really getting into like conspiracy theories and political corruption and all this sort of stuff and i feel like you know in our times there's been a lot of sort of talk about being in the middle and being a moderate and stuff but really it's sort of a a guise for continuing like corporate you know the corporate structures as they are and uh benefiting corporations and and powerful people but it feels like what you're talking about is a real sort of like really considering all 
people's needs and trying to find a real balanced situation. Like even the example you gave about your friend with the, the rancher friend and you going vegan, it's like I just um, spoke with Charles Eisenstein recently and he wrote a book about climate change and, and um, really interesting stuff. Highly recommend it. Um, but he talks a lot about regenerative agriculture and that's a really interesting point where it is kind of in the middle. It's not necessarily that we need to fully cut out any types of ranching or people eating meat, but also that doesn't mean we have to keep things the way things are and continue like massive industrial agriculture. There is some middle ground that takes knowledge and wisdom from the old times and also forward thinking new technologies and sort of marries it all into into this whole new way. Yeah, exactly. And when I was researching for the book, that was an element that really stood out to me. It and it's a it's a rejection rejection of extremism, and mm. that is on both sides. And so, uh, in writing this book, I was able to interview Dr. Don Beck a number of times, who wrote two of the books on spiral dynamics. And one of the stories that he tells, because he also worked with Nelson Mandela, he made 67 trips to South Africa to apply this theory to apartheid, to help end apartheid without a civil war. And one of the ways that they did that is by denouncing extremism. And I, I actually cite an example in the book where uh, an African-American man was killed. And it could have been a really divisive time in that period of South African history. And even though Nelson Mandela, I'm sure, could relate to what was happening, he actually came out against that in the media very strongly. And so he was denouncing this individual as an extremist. And um, so I think it's important to look at that, that you know, the solutions are not going to come from being far extreme on the right or the left, but really in starting to merge solutions to come up with something totally new, like regenerative agriculture, which I'm also very excited about. Mm -hmm. And when I brought up that concept to my friend who is a cattle farmer, she's very open to looking at those uh, sorts of solutions, you know, and when you approach things from that perspective, you can have a really reasonable discussion because you know she has the same goal she's got kids and grandkids and wants to see a healthy place for her family as well uh, but when you start talking about climate change or certain words it gets really divisive but there mm -hmm. are ways to bring you know the conversation together yeah i think when you tell somebody hey what you're doing isn't right and you're part of the problem and you need to change and i'm good like that's when things start to get you know you get that polarization and that resistance. I mean, it, it doesn't only not want, doesn't only not inspire people to change. It seems like it really makes them dig their heels in and want to, you know, fight against change even more. Exactly. Exactly. And I think, unfortunately, we still see a lot of that in our political system. And uh, in the book, I talk a little bit about that. So our politicians, unfortunately, have become more and more polarized. And so we're seeing the extreme sides of the political spectrum with our politicians. But when you look at actual individuals, there's, I cite a couple of studies, including one from hiddentribes.us that has done research from a thousand, you know, thousands of individuals across the US. And what they found is that individuals by the most part are not that far apart. 
most of us are either in the center or slightly left or slightly right. Um, but we're not really represented by our political system, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, why do you think that is? I mean, because I also, and you might not have an answer for this, I don't know, or maybe you get into it in the book and I just don't know, but I was kind of at a point where you were talking about, um, you know, that how, you know, the media runs off of clicks and views and how these extra polarized things get more clicks and views. I mean, um, but, you know, if most people are more in the middle, it's like, why is that stuff so attractive? Is it part of the fear based f- from the first tier and that fear is attractive and it, in a time of change, people are just sort of, you know, uh, just attracted to the extreme ideas just out of, you know, fearing whether they're right or wrong or I don't know. What, what do you think is going on there? Yeah, I think it's complex, and I think there's lots of things going on. You know, from uh, looking at Graves's model, we can see where there are uh, some aspects of a regressive value search happening right now. So people are realizing that their coping mechanisms are no longer effective because the the problems have gotten so much more complex. And Mm -hmm. so things that used to work no longer work. And they're feeling frustrated. So they're going back to previous layers and back to a previous time where things did work again because they're trying to look for solutions, right? Because that's easier than changing, especially changing your whole belief system. So we have some of that going on. And then we also have the element, I I talk about this in the book, the um, exaggerated cycle of polarization that we're seeing in the U.S. And so a lot of the things that you mentioned, so we have, you know, social media reinforcing uh, our current belief system. We have the media really focusing on these sensationalized stories because they're getting likes or clicks. And uh, then we also have confirmation bias. So we see somebody on Twitter that is maybe on the other side and they're tweeting about something crazy. So that just confirms this bias that we've developed from the media. And then we start to see tribalism. And so when people are feeling stressed and tension, we tend to revert to tribalism, which we're seeing a lot of that. And so we're aligning with one party or the other, because that's the party that we were raised with, typically, um, even though we don't completely agree with them. And so then we start to see the other side as bad or worse than they are. Mm -hmm. And so it creates this, this cyclical process that just repeats over and over again. And it does get, it gets worse over time, unless we do something to kind of actively change it. Yeah. And so there's active things to do, but, and maybe this is a good time to speak to how Graves breaks down the process of change itself and how that can be enlightening. Um, and it's not to say, you know, I mean, your book is all, all about, I think, actively being involved in this in this process of change. But it seems to me there is also an element of kind of weathering the storm and like trusting that this is a process and that, you know, it is kind of written in the code that just like how you go through puberty and become an adult, this is sort of that same type of process and that... Well, there is things you do when you're going from puberty puberty to becoming an adult. And as you, you know, learn more about that change process, you can probably be more effective in enacting 
those changes and being a part of it, there is also seems to be this element of sort of like surrendering to the process and and um, allowing it to unfold. Does that seem accurate? Yeah, I think that it's helpful to do that a little bit, but I think it's also important to realize that moving through the different layers is not guaranteed. Mm. That it's possible that we will not move to the next layer as a society. You know, yeah. individuals might still do that, but there are lots of examples of societies that are kind of frozen. Mm. Like we mm. actually see this a lot in the Middle East. And uh, when I've, just, I've talked to Dr. Beck about it, he has indicated that that's one of the reasons we saw the rise in terrorism, because you have a culture that is kind of frozen in this red, blue uh, layer with this very rigid goals and uh, they have religion and structure around them and you have individuals who are wanting to move to orange or wanting to move to green and they can't because their environment is so restrictive and so it creates this huge amount of frustration because they see a lot of things that we have here in the West that they would also like, but they're not able to do that because of the life conditions. And so, uh, unfortunately, it's not a given that we will move to those next layers. And mm -hmm. so, that was one of the, the driving reasons for me to write this book, too, is to encourage people to step up and take action and to be an active part of this process and to be active in creating that next layer and to helping this transition between these different uh, layers so that we can create that successful transition. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, so what is the Graves's, I mean, it's a pretty simple thing, but I think once, I know once I heard it, maybe once other people hear it, just the little process of change, the breakdown of kind of how the change process happens is very interesting to me. So uh, could you explain that? Yeah, so he breaks it down into kind of five primary stages. And one of those is, so you're stable, first of all. You know, you're going along well in life. And we probably saw this, we did see this earlier in Orange. You know, we uh, were able to solve a lot of our problems with technology and, you know, materialism. We were enjoying some of the benefits of wealth. And so you're going along and things are just great. And then all of a sudden you start to have this feeling that something's not right and just this nagging uh, you know, feeling inside that you need to do something differently, but you're not sure what. And so over time, that begins to create tension. And so we see that as individuals and societies. So you just, you know, something's not right, but you're not sure what. And so that's what can actually uh, create this regressive value search. So going back to, okay, when was a time when things were going well? Let's go back to the good old days. Let's go back to make America great again, right? Because things were so much better than, you know, whether they were or not, uh, it's hard to say, but we have this idealized version in our minds that we want to go back to. And unfortunately, that never works, right? Because those solutions were maybe great at the time, but the world has changed and our life conditions are far more complex. And so eventually there's a crash that happens because we're not able to go back to this simpler period of time. What we're doing is no longer working. Uh, we're feeling feelings of tension and chaos uh, very much you know, what we're starting to feel right now in society, at least many of us, I know 
that was uh, part of what prompted me to write this book is I was feeling that frustration and overwhelming chaos and tension and like things are just out of control. And so um, that prompts you to change your perspective, right? So it's like, okay, I've tried all of these other things and it's not working. So what else can I do? And then you start to become open to other potential solutions. And so then eventually you find something that works, right? So maybe changing changing your lifestyle, changing the way you're living, changing the way our systems and society might operate could be the liberation phase. And so then the liberation phase is really exciting because you've uh, uncovered all of these amazing tools that really work and Mm -hmm. you can just see where you're going to get out of this hole that you've become in. And then eventually you work through that liberation phase and you get to a new stable. And so the whole cycle starts to repeat itself again. But it's important to note that if you've moved through the layer to the next layer, uh, it's at a higher octave. And when I was writing this book, I, Christopher Cook is a, a mentor, actually, of Steve McDonald and uh, someone who's been teaching spiral dynamics for many years. And he pointed out to me that uh, sometimes it's not enough to push you to the next layer. So that's important to note that you um, might be able to move through a stage, but not move on to the next one. So you're still kind of within in that same layer. So mm. ideally, you're moving to that that new layer but at a higher octave so you're operating at a higher level you're able to handle much more complex problems yeah yeah um i know something steve has on his website that i really like that sort of gives another example of this process like in nature um and just as a fundamental part of reality is the you know about cymatics no Uh, cymatics is like um i guess the visualization of sound would be a good way to put it. So they'll take like a metal plate and put sand on it and then they'll uh, vibrate a frequency onto that metal plate and it'll create like a beautiful little pattern, sort of like a mandala. Um, And as you raise that or lower that vibration, um, you know, from one standing wave to the next, there's this process in between where the pattern sort of dissolves and gets really chaotic Um, And then when it gets to that next higher order, that next octave um, or next harmonic, um, it'll sort of naturally reconstitute itself into a new pattern. And it certainly, change is still really challenging from my perspective. I'm going through a pretty intense change process myself and it's been fairly chaotic and overwhelming. But there is some slight taking of the edge off when you understand that the discomfort of change is like a natural part of it. And there's really no way around it. Like it's good. It's that's part of why (laughs) what change is, is uncomfortable, you know? So I think that in and of itself, beyond even all the layers and stages, just that would be a pretty, uh, fantastic thing for more people to hear right now, because, um, just to know that, you know, like you said, there is the chance that things can get stuck at a point and that we won't move forward. But also, I think sometimes taking some of that tension away or like having that pause and not acting from a place of fear and tension can produce better results or more wise actions. You know what I mean? Um, that's something that I, I feel like I've found anyways. When we act instinctively out of a place of 
fear and survival lots of times we can further complex you know make make our problems more complex and like exactly what you're saying with the hearkening back to the to the previous layers adds that extra tension and which does propel the change process but also makes things pretty uncomfortable so yeah exactly and i'm a big proponent of that too of you know working doing the self-work too so that you're able to kind of stay grounded during this period of chaos and transition because especially if you are a leader or change maker of any sort uh, this time can be really challenging because you're going to have all kinds of things coming at you that are going to push your buttons and stress you out and make you feel uncomfortable and cause feelings of fear. So, you know, I really encourage people to put in even more, an even bigger emphasis on self-care and creating a daily, you know, ritual to help keep yourself grounded during this time uh, so that you can show up as your highest self, highest mm. and best self, because that's what we need right now in the world is people showing up that way and um, not coming, you know, from a place of fear, but really coming from a, pe- a place of, you know, love, really, and being grounded and, you know, working together to try to try to create solutions. Yeah, that was actually where I wanted to ask you next, which I haven't gotten this far yet in the book, but... I've seen the chapter title Inner Work for Change, and I was just, uh, if you haven't already sort of given an overview of what that is, I'd love to hear a little bit more about, um, you know, maybe what that looks like and why that's important. Yeah, so uh, it includes things like, you know, coming up with a, a daily ritual, and, you know, maybe that's meditation or yoga, something to kind of help clear your mind. I'm a big proponent of journaling, and I actually have a journaling guide that I often share that uh, uses a technique called morning pages where you just will get up and first thing you do is you write three pages. And this actually comes from Julia Cameron's book called The Artist's Way. And I know that process, uh, doing that over the course of time, probably a year or more, was really transformational for me because... Uh, one, it helps you just get all of the busyness out of your head and you you don't edit yourself, you don't judge what you're writing, you don't go back and cross something out and redo it. Hmm. You just do kind of, um, you know, just at the, t- at the moment what you're thinking, you write it. And if you start drawing a blank, you might even write, I'm not sure what to say next. And then all of a sudden something will come in your mind, but it really helps to just get all of that craziness out of your head and then what i found over time is that when you do that and i've used this with my coaching clients for years and a lot of times they've come back to me and have said that was the most helpful thing that i've ever done because when you start doing that you free up this space in your own mind and it allows the intuition and the creativity to come in and so it never fails i'll be writing about something like oh, there's all these problems and blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden, I'll like just get all of these ideas in my head and be like, oh my gosh, well, that's what I could do. And so then my journaling will automatically shift from, you know, kind of whining and complaining a Hmm. little bit. Oh, I could do this and I could do this. And um, so it really helps to create that space in your own mind. So that's one of my absolute favorite practices is is that. And then... um, You can also use the change code to look back at your own life 
And I talk a little bit about my own journey through the colors in the book, but we can all do that. We can all look back over the course of our lives when we've started to move between the different layers. Uh, I sometimes tell the story about when I was in high school, you know, I lived in very rural Montana and uh, I started to get involved with some organizations that were wanting to help save the trees, which I thought was just brilliant. And I had never heard that before. And it was so exciting. And I was a waitress in a really small diner in a rural town. And I took this uh, petition to work one day, right? And I was so excited. And just uh, my, my boss took me aside and was very kind and said, you know, Monica, I think that's a great idea. But you have to realize that a lot of people here earn their living from timber. And so they may not like that petition. Mm. And it never occurred to me that there would be a conflict there because I thought we could, why, why can't we do both? <laughs> you mm. know, so, uh, you know, I started to see some little spikes of green, even in high school, even in a, in a very rural environment. So it's interesting to look back at your own life story and kind of plot it out and see the transitions you've made before. And it also, I think it helps to provide a little bit of confidence. It's like, okay, you know, I've moved through that before and was successful. You know, I, you know, I can do this. I can navigate whatever I'm dealing with now too. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Something <laughs> I talked about uh, with Steve the last time we talked, Steve McDonald. Um, and this might be a good way to go about some of that too, but we talked about, um, you know, having certain uh, hurts or traumas or deficiencies in certain layers and that kind of as we're going to, you know, kind of part of the purpose of layer six is to kind of go back and heal old wounds and prepare us uh, with a solid foundation for this momentous leap from tier one to tier two. Uh, so that sounds like an interesting technique that could maybe be used as sort of like a mapping of going through and trying to find memories or events that, hey, maybe, you know, I don't know, maybe... I have trouble asserting myself because I have this tough thing that I went through in, you know, in the red layer. So my sort of feeling of power and authority is repressed or something, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I think it's really helpful. I also, I have a, a free assessment that people can take. It's a very basic assessment to tell you the different percentages of the layers. Mm. And that can also be helpful. So when I took that, my red layer was very low. And so in kind of doing this self-reflection, I realized, you know, you want a healthy amount of the layers. And so, you know, to me, that indicated that, you know, maybe I need to do some martial arts or something, mm. more, you know, and I struggle sometimes at, you know, being assertive and being bold, those sorts of things, which could be reflective of, you know, maybe not being as strong as I could be with some of that red layer. So, so a way to kind of help balance <laughs> out your expression of yourself. Yeah, that's pretty exactly. cool. Um, is that on your website? It is. It's on thechangecode.net, awesome. and there's a, a button there to take the free assessment. So, very cool. Yeah, I think that would be cool. Um, so I think we covered some pretty good ground. Um. I'm wondering, you know, I see you have, I know you have the, what is it, um, the seven commitments to being a change maker, seven principles, or I can't remember how you worded it. Yeah, but I then do. You, but then, then you also have sort of game-changing tools, and I'm 
wondering what are some of the more like what are the some of the practical things you know in the book maybe you could cover those principles or whatever you kind of think yeah you know i would recommend um and on the website on the resources i actually have a change code oath that people can download that and you don't have to sign up for email or anything it's just on the website under the resources mm -hmm. but one thing that i might just focus on that I feel like is the most impactful um, is really the opportunity to build community around us because we know where we are as a society is, is in this shift between uh, the fifth layer of orange and the sixth layer of green, you know, so we're moving from that very individualistic uh, area. And so a lot of people are feeling very isolated, lonely. You know, I work in the healthcare field, we see a huge increase in opioid addiction, drug addiction. Um, and it's people trying to combat that feeling of isolation and loneliness. And so if people are wanting to do something really proactive to help us with this change and help to create a better place, Really, if we can all around us just start looking for opportunities for building community. So even if it's just in our own neighborhood, even if it's just, you know, being kind to people at the store, uh, research has shown us that most of us don't talk to our neighbors anymore and we don't even know our neighbors. And so it's just furthering that isolation. So if we want to help create these life conditions for this next layer, community is going to be key. Uh, I know Steve McDonald talks a lot about that on his podcast, uh, Future Sense, as well, about, you know, getting local agriculture and farmers markets and reconnecting with some of those things. You know, that's something that we can all do, I think, no matter where we are, is make that commitment to starting to build community. In the book, I, I give the example, you know, I've lived in a number of neighborhoods in my adult life, and including in places that you would think would maybe be friendly and really didn't know my neighbors, even after living there for five plus years. And then I moved to this neighborhood about five years ago, and I have a neighbor who is just amazing, but she, you can tell it's a conscious choice to build community. I don't know that she realizes that's what it is, but she makes a point. As soon as we moved in, she brought us a box of chocolates and a welcome note. And she does that with all of the neighbors. And so as a result, I know all of my neighbors on this block and it mm. feels like a community. So when one of our neighbors was sick, uh, our, my next door neighbor, Sina, I talk about her in the book, what would take him food and we all pitched in to take him food and you know there's studies that show just that one thing uh it actually uh predicts how healthy and how long people are going to live is the community that they have around them and so there's so many benefits to that and that's what's really going to shift our society plus it makes us feel better so so that's one one aspect of the book that i would just call out and encourage people because you can start doing that tomorrow Mm hmm. Yeah. And it's weird why, why, you know, it can be hard to do that for some reason, uh, especially yeah. when, you know, you don't have that tension pushing you to, to really force you out to do it. Um, I've, that's one of the big thing that I've noticed is that sense of isolation and, you know, sort of, I w was going through a very intense orange phase of, you know, just wanting to cre turn my passions into a career and stuff, which is, which is all good. But yeah, it ended up really isolating me, um, you know, working from home by myself in a, an apartment and, um, 
Yeah, and it's that feeling of, yeah, I live in an apartment building with how many other people and I barely even know anyone in it, much less enough to, you know, invite them over or ask them for a favor or whatever. Um, and even just the other day, I, I bought a couch on Craigslist and I didn't have anyone to help me carry it in because it was during the day and people were busy or whatever. But I just went, you know, I think uh, if it's meant to work out, there'll be somebody around when I get back and it, it'll work out. And uh, sure enough, I parked the U-Haul and there was a guy who lives across the street that was loading some stuff into his car. And I, d I had never met him before. And he was happy to help me. And so just that one little interaction gave me a feeling of like, yeah, okay, you know, there's opportunity to just connect with people and put yourself out there. Um, and, yeah, I agree with you that that really seems like we're just desperate for that right now. At least I know personally I am, you know. Yeah, and boy, I hear that all the time. And I, I work from home myself, so I can completely relate. <laughs> if it wasn't for uh, having to go walk my dogs a couple times a day, you know, I would probably barely leave the house. And so uh, I think that a lot of us are in that boat. And it can be easier to stay in that isolation because, quite frankly, sometimes building that community can be messy. Like we have kind of a goofy neighbor too, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, that uh, once you kind of open that door, you start to see, you know, all sorts of things. But she's also been great, you know, once we've gotten to know her and stuff like that. So, you know, it's just realizing you got to kind of work through some of that messiness of building those relationships. And it can be uncomfortable and awkward and, you know, stressful at times. But that the end result, you know, especially if you stay focused on that, is to create this sense of community. Yeah, I think, you know, you start to bump up against <laughs> those each other's rough edges you know and you do encounter those different layers so you have different perspectives and different values and but just finding some common ground of a human connection and that need to just have support and people around can kind of supersede the more superficial differences i think yeah exactly and i think kindness goes so far i think that it, it, the power of kindness is really underestimated now, I talk in the book a little bit about the butterfly effect, that we have no idea and no control about the impact of what we put out into the world. So you could just smile and have a conversation or like the example you gave of your neighbor willing to help you with that couch. Like he has no idea that, you know, really helped transform your whole day. And now you have a new couch, right? Yep. So, you know, I think just taking those steps, even if they're small, is really powerful. Um, there's another theory that I'm diving into right now. I, I learned about it when I was researching for the book, but I didn't go too far into it. But it's uh, Morphic Resonance yeah. by uh, Rupert Sheldrake, mm -hmm. which uh, sounds really fancy and complex, I thought. But once you dive into it, it's essentially pretty simple. It's when you create change in one area, one small area, that same change appears in other parts of the world, in, in our our system. And so you can't underestimate the power of one small kind act, you know, so. Yeah, that's cool that you brought that up because it, it, I was thinking of the same thing. Charles Eisenstein talks about similar things where, um, you know, there's this kind of idea among people who really want to change things, activists and stuff, which is very noble, uh, but just that 
change can only look a certain way that if you want to change the climate you have to be working on cutting carbon emissions or you have to be whatever and charles kind of challenges that with a similar thing of morphic resonance i know he's had rupert on his podcast and stuff so he's into that theory as well but just sort of the idea that you know we all have our unique gifts and that part of what is we don't always understand how things change and sometimes putting your gift out there even if it doesn't seem to be related to the change that you want to uh, see it, you're doing something you know like you're doing something to add more more beauty and authenticity into the world um, so that's something that I think can be helpful to think about Exactly. I've uh, learned about his work recently myself and have started diving into it and really it really resonates with me as well because I think there's that aspect of things building on top of each other and so because I used to struggle with that same thing. It's like, well, I could do this uh, certain project and it's, you know, aligns with my mission and it's going to make a, a difference. But how is that going to help with climate change? How is that going to help with these big major problems? You know, it feels like it's not enough. And I think realizing that there is that power of, of everyone stepping into whatever their purpose is, whatever their role is, that those actions are going to build upon each other and they do create a tipping point on the planet. And so, you know, to be part of that, we have to have to step into that. Yeah, and I think, you, you know, we could come up with some, uh, you know, uh, imagined scenario, but I think it's pretty, like, realistic, which is, say, the guy who helped me carry the couch you know that might have just given me a bit more of a feeling of safety to approach somebody in my community which might inspire me to put myself out there and try to create a community meetup or something which might inspire somebody else to research some th agriculture thing you know what i'm saying so like one small thing could influence somebody else to do something that is directly related to climate change or to some to something else healing the environment or or the social injustice so yeah it's just that thing of that we can never like you said we can never really um predetermine what our even smallest actions what kind of butterfly effect they might have you know um yeah. so yeah, yeah that that might sound kind of woo-woo to some people but i think the closer you get to these types of things the more it seems real and it's um times when you might when change seems so hard and you don't really know what the next step to take is and the, the steps that you might have taken in the past have seemed to fail you or lead to a dead end sometimes all you really have left is smiling and chatting with somebody at the grocery store or something you know yeah, for sure. Um, in, in the book, I highlight this case study that uh, is amazing. There's this individual who started uh, an organization called Ant Farm, and his name is Nunpa, uh, and that comes from the Lakota tribe that he's part of. His name means two singing foxes. Mm. And he just was driving through his town one day and was noticing that there were these young people on the side of the street very early in the morning and so obviously they weren't headed to school obviously they weren't headed to work and he thought wouldn't it be great if there was some way to help these youth you know find a job and you know support them in some way so that they could be successful so he started this organization called ant farm 
which uh, is amazing in many ways. Uh, one, he brought together this diverse group of people from his community because it's a little more conservative than than here in Portland. And he was able to bring together liberals and conservatives and people with different religious backgrounds from the community to support this because he created this overarching goal. And now it's this wonderful community center with a, a cafe and a coffee shop where all of these different types of people come together and have meetings and they have lunch and they have this huge range of services to support the youth in the community who also go out and support the elderly in the community. Some of their projects will be to go out and help the elderly fix up their house for free. But anyway, I was just blown away. I went and visited him and I, I said to him, I said, Noonpa, what is your one piece of advice for people who are wanting to make a difference, but you know, maybe they don't feel like they can go out and start an ant farm. And his, his advice was just start. Hmm. And he said the exact same thing we're saying, even if it's just being kind to somebody, just start. So, I've kind of taken that lesson and uh, remind myself of that all the time, too, because I, I can get caught up in that, too, that I, I need to do all of these big, you know, wonderful, dramatic things. And it's like, well, just start. <laughs> yeah, and it kind of, uh, you know, resonates with the idea of something I was reading early on in the book here is kind of having to accept um, change, just good enough for now types of changes you know, and that's been a, a struggle for me in my own life. I, I tend to be pretty idealistic and utopian and I have these exact visions for what my life could be like. And it's sort of like they seem so out of reach that to even take a step and to try to do anything that changes, uh, if I can't see that it's, you know, creating that idealistic version, it's like, well, why would I do that, you know? But there is some sort of steps that need to be taken in between. You know, you don't go from uh, from just riding a bike to to doing some crazy mountain biking race or something. You know, there has to be these small steps in between. So, um, is that uh, the good enough change? You know, how do you see that right now? Yeah, I think that's so important because um, I actually refer to it uh, with the concept of wicked problems. And wicked problems is a concept that came from a sociologist named Horst Riddle. And it actually means that the problem is essentially not solvable. And so issues like climate change, like someone's not just going to come out with, okay, here's the solution for climate change. Let's just fix it and move on, right? Because it's complex and there's many uh, different aspects to the problem. It's a complex adaptive system, our, our planet. It also affects agriculture and it affects uh, uh, industry and it affects, um, you know, just you name it. It's, it's all intertwined as part of the same problem. And so there isn't going to be a simple solution. And so rather than getting kind of caught up on that, what we need to start looking at is, okay, how do we come together and create the next layer of solution. So good enough for now. So let's move forward. Let's all, you know, come up with a solution and and just do something and good enough for now. And then what happens is, or what should happen, is that you continually navigate that problem. And so you put those solutions in place, right? So you fix part of it. And then you're going to find that new solution, new problems are created. So you have to fix those too, but you can kind of then come back together and create another good enough for now solution. But that's how we're going to move forward 
towards solving some of these big problems because, you know, I was really hoping in my research and I, I really truly was hoping that there would be some magic bullet in, in the research for some of these things. And what I came to the conclusion is that there's not. It's, you know, putting in that work of collaboration and, you know, just moving forward together and coming up with these good enough for now solutions, revisiting the problem again, and, you know, just repeating that process and, and moving forward however we can. Yeah, and sometimes it seems like even if there is um, some potentially really good solutions, like I think about climate change, and it's not that it's a solution, but it's one step, like when I think about regenerative regenerative agriculture and permaculture and all the possibilities within that, while those might be realistic um, things to create some some major changes, those things can't happen until people are interested in making them happen. So again, it kind of puts you in the position of, okay, well, if we can't have that yet, then there needs to be some other option that we can do now, you know? Exactly. Um, and it sort of yeah. reminds me of like creating a piece of art or a piece of music. I'm a musician and a visual artist. And it's like, I know from that experience that if I just sit there and, you know, try to imagine the perfect song before I ever put a note down you know I'm paralyzed and I'm never going to do anything but once I start putting things down I might have a totally different idea and come up with a totally different result than what I wanted in the first place but it might be better than I could have imagined but it requires sort of stepping into the unknown and just sort of being informed by your your decisions you know exactly and writing was the same way right I worked with a book coach and and I would have to get that kind of shitty first draft out there. And I would be like cringing, like, oh, my gosh, I don't want anyone to see this because it's so bad. Right. And we have to, like, work through the edits. And then as you're doing it, you're like, oh, I can also say this and this and um, can really go from there. But, yeah, it is taking that doing that shitty first draft. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yep. I always say that it's like you have to sort of purge out all the stuff before you can it's kind of like the morning pages you're talking about you know like there's yeah. this process of just sort of like getting it all out before you can let the uh, more pure clearer ideas flow out yeah i just love that concept so much because you're writing and you're thinking well how is this helpful you know i'm writing about what i have to do today and then all of a sudden you feel better and you're like oh well i guess it did work yeah, see, and the, even you bringing up the morning pages, it might inspire me to stick with it because I've done it a little bit and it has helped, but there's just something where I just will randomly stop doing it. But I've noticed that myself. I can sit and write two pages about how terrible my life is and then all of a sudden I start writing things I could be doing. Like, oh, I, and I'll start writing affirmations and things I'm grateful for and it's like, oh, where'd that come from, you know? Yeah, exactly. Well, one of my passions is really uh, tapping into intuition and helping other people tap into their intuition, because I believe that a lot of our future solutions are going to come from the, the realm of intuition and innovation and this creative genius and tapping into sources that are really bigger than us. And so that's why I think uh, this process is so helpful is because it helps us tap into that intuitive, um, you know, co-creative, if you will, energy that helps us come up with different perspectives and ideas. Yeah. And I think that's what I was alluding to during the diet 
portion is just like with diet with even with politics really with anything it just seems like this uh fifth layer orange mentality of there's going to be some sort of you know scientifically validated ultimate truth and that through through science and rationality we can come up with like the perfect diet or the perfect this or that it just seems like that is really failing us uh at least for me individually it's has really kind of come to the point where it's like that there's some validity still in science, obviously, and in, in looking at research and things, but ultimately there needs to be some birth of a deeper connection with, you know, the intuitive wisdom of the individual and connecting with that and, you know, what's right for you, what feels best for your body. And uh, so I resonate with that idea for sure. Yeah, absolutely. When I was uh, launching my own business a number of years ago, I worked with all of these expensive business coaches because I thought they could give me this, you know, cookie cutter process. And eventually what I realized is that I have the answers, you know, and it, it, it is tapping into that intuitive process. And I think really for, for most things, when we make that connection, we start to realize that we have way more of the answers than, than we thought we did. Yeah, and it's sort of that awakening of the, of maybe a deeper truth, which is that there isn't any really one size fits all solution for for any person. You know that we're all infinitely unique, um, and so sometimes like trying to crowdsource too much opinion or have too many like coaches or marketing strategists or all this stuff it might even be able to get you a certain amount of success, but it's sort of, I think in the long run, it's like takes away from your individual gift to the world, you know, that's going to be very unique to you and um, can't really be created by a strategist or a coach or whatever, you know? Yeah. You know, I really experienced that in writing this book uh, because my nature is to try to get things done, right? But when I would just allow myself to kind of surrender to the process and almost allow myself to be guided a little bit, that's when I would find like the amazing uh, information that needed to be included or have a big breakthrough. So uh, it, it was a really co-creative process for me, which was uh, really fun to experience. That's awesome. So the book is The Change Code, A Practical Guide to Making a Difference in a Polarized World. And I'll mention it in the intro and stuff so people don't have to wait the entire podcast to hear the title and I'll link to it and all that. But um, people can get it from Amazon and your website. Can they get it on your website or? Yeah. So if they go to thechangecode.net, I have links to several places you can get the book. You can get it on Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, Indie, Indie Book. I forget what it's called, actually. Sure. (laughs) No worries. Should I say that again? Oh, no, that's all right. You can just, when you find it, you can. Indiebound. Indiebound? Okay. Yeah, so if they want to buy it from through a local bookstore, they can also order it through a lot of local bookstores. Cool. That's awesome. Is there any possibility in the future of an audiobook version, do you think? Or I don't know how all that works. I'm just curious. Maybe. We're looking at some options for that. Um, I've also uh, been talking to Steve McDonald about possibly translating the book into other languages. We've had a lot of people from 
around the world buying the book, you know, big audience in uh, the UK and Australia, of course, uh, with Steve there. So we're looking at some options to kind of expand it a little bit. And for people who don't know, we didn't mention yet anybody who's a fan of Steve McDonald's work. He did write the foreword to the book as well. He did. Yeah, I was so grateful that he was willing to do that. And he also uh, reviewed the book, uh, mm. which was really helpful during the editing process, because he's been studying uh, the work of Claire W. Graves for many years longer than I have. And so that was really helpful to have his ideas and insights in the creative process as well. Yeah, very cool. Is there anything else uh, about the book or just any anything else that you want to share with with people who listen to this before we wrap it up? No, I, I think just, you know, feel free to go to the website, take the free assessment. I also have a lot of resources on the resources tab if you want to learn more about, you know, any of the concepts that we've discussed today. Oh, also, I have a, a Facebook group. So if you feel like you are a, a change agent, a leader, or a visionary, we'd love to have you join us in the Agents for Change Facebook group. Mm. Uh, which is uh, facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash the change code. And we've got people from all over the world and are creating this really amazing community in a Facebook group. So Awesome. I'll definitely add a link to that in the show notes as well for anybody who wants to get in on that. And I will jump on that as well. I'll try to get into that group. That sounds cool. And then yeah. for I'm recording this video, so I'll put this out at some point for anybody who is watching this. I don't know how well you can see that, but there's the book right there. And awesome. I am, I don't know how far I am and yet, you know, a quarter of the way maybe tops, but I uh, am very hooked. I can't wait to get back into it and to finish it up. So from what I've read so far, great job. And thanks again for, for coming on to talk to me. Yeah, thanks, Jacob, and thanks for all you do. I mentioned to you in my email, but I appreciate you hosting Steve McDonald as well because uh, unknowingly, that's how uh, I was able to connect with Steve McDonald as I heard him on your podcast and uh, was able to reach out to him directly and got connected with his podcast as well. And so so I really appreciate all the work you're doing. And Thank you. I thought that was so cool. I mean, you know, I've questioned whether or not I actually want to continue this podcast at times just because it's like, well, why am I doing this again? And to hear something like that, it's just like, okay, that's a little thing that, I mean, that's, that, that just gives me a little fuel to keep going, you know, because it's like, then you, you were able to talk about the book on future sense, which I know a lot of people listen to. And it, it just seems like a cool, uh, synergistic thing. So yeah, for sure. All sorts of collaborations have sprung out of that. So so again, you don't know what impact you're going to have. <laughs> you're putting it out there and there's all these ripples coming off of it. So Definitely. Cool. Well, thanks again. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. You have been listening to Awake, Aware, Alive. If you enjoy this podcast, share it with a friend, share it with a family member. Post it on an Instagram story and tag me and all that jazz. It's really annoying to say that stuff, and it's probably annoying to hear it. I don't know, but maybe somebody will hear that and feel compelled to do it. Otherwise, don't do it. Just uh, listen. Or don't. The choice is yours. But if you hear this right now, thank you.